Shalom, and welcome to Via Hafta Yisrael, a Hebrew phrase which means you shall love Israel. We hope you'll stay with us for the next 30 minutes as our teacher, Dr. Baruch, shares his expository teaching from the Bible. Dr. Baruch is the senior lecturer at the Zera Avraham Institute based in Israel. Although all courses are taught in Hebrew at the Institute, Dr. Baruch is pleased to share this weekly address in English. To find out more about our work in Israel, please visit us on the web at loveisrael.org. That's one word, loveisrael.org. Now, here's Baruch with today's lesson. Are you too casual about your faith? When it comes to studying the scripture, are you too careless? Many people do not place the significance on the word of God as they ought to. And when we fail to do that, it is going to impact what we believe, what we know about God, and how we behave. Behavior is of the utmost importance to God. Now, I want to say something, as I've done many other times in this study, and that is this. We are saved by grace. It's a free gift. We access it by faith. We play no role in us being saved. God does it all. And therefore, works are not part of our salvation experience. And we see something else, that our performance doesn't maintain our salvation. Once one has been saved by God's grace, we access that through faith. Once one has been saved, that person is going to be eternally in that condition, being made a child of God through God's work of redemption. God brought it about. He maintains it. We do nothing in regard to those two things, maintaining our salvation and bringing it about initially. Now, even though that works, performance, behavior, plays no role in the means that is how we have been saved. But, as I said, our works, our deeds, our behaviors are still important to God. Why? Because they bear testimony to others of our new life. That we haven't, hear this, that we have had an experience that we have been born again, that we are a new creation through Messiah being in him, in this covenantal relationship with the living God. Well, take out your Bible and look with me to the epistle, John's first epistle, and now we're ready for chapter 5. In this fifth chapter, we see some foundational truth, and we need to embrace it. And let me just simply say this, theology is important. The doctrines that, that you embrace are extremely important. They have the utmost significance. If we're not believing the right thing, then we may not be saved. And even if we have believed the gospel properly, if we have poor theology, then we're not going to be behaving in a way that God is pleased. We're not going to be serving him. So this is of the utmost importance. And we're going to see how the truth impacts our behavior. And that is something that, that you and I need to understand and remember. The truth, meaning proper theology, the right doctrines, 
understanding what the Bible reveals. These things are going to impact our behavior. And John is going to reveal this in no uncertain terms to us in this first part of chapter 5. So look there with me. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, it says here, And everyone who believes that Yeshua, that's Jesus, is the Messiah. Now, the first thing I want us to see is this. It says, everyone. Everyone who is believing. Now, that is a very broad statement. It includes all people. The invitation of the gospel is offered to all of humanity. It came to Israel first to the sons of Jacob, the Jewish people, but it was always, always, always God's intent that through Israel that this gospel would go forth to, as the scripture says, to the outermost parts of the earth. So it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, what ethnic group you belong to, what language you speak, what country has your citizenship? If you say yes to the gospel, if you believe, as it says here, everyone who believes that Yeshua is the Messiah, everyone who believes that, they're going to share a, a same outcome. And what is that? It tells us that, that that one who believes that Yeshua is the Messiah, it tells us from God, from God, and it's speaking about this one who believes. It says, he is begotten. Now, that is simply an old English term, begotten for, born. And the implication is, because we've been born the first time, we're born again, born anew. We have new life. It's a reference to what theologians call regeneration. Through our faith in him, it's going to cause something cause us to be born again, to be gotten anew, to have a new identity, to become a new man or a new woman. All of this concept of being regenerated. And then it tells us this, this word, having been begotten, we need to pay attention to grammar because there's some very important information found in the grammar of that phrase, having been begotten. First of all, it's in the perfect tense and in the passive voice. What does that mean? Well, it tells us that when one is, is begotten, born again, that happened for me many, many years ago. So it happened in the past, but today, right now, that, that new condition, having been begotten anew by God, it's still part of my life. And the fact that it's in the perfect, it just doesn't mean that it's in the past and it comes now into the present, but it continues on into the future. And in this context, based upon what the word of God reveals, it will extend for all of eternity. Being begotten anew, born again, regenerated, causes us to be a new creation, obviously, a new creation in Messiah. And that tells me that that new status, that new condition is an eternal one. That's the perfect tense. What does the passive voice tell us? The passive voice tells us, and this has huge implications. It tells us that I didn't do it. I didn't achieve it. 
I had nothing to do with it. It simply was done for me in my behalf. I received it by faith, but God did it. God did it and God will, and this is also big, because there are teachers that, that are sharing falsehood. They're saying that in order to maintain that salvation experience, then you have to do this or that or something else has to be done. No, there's nothing that needs to be done in order to maintain our salvation. There's one individual that says Messiah. He intercedes and that intercession maintains our salvation. No, there's no Bible verse that says that whatsoever. Does he intercede for us? Yes, he does. Does that impact our life? Yes, it does. Does it change in any way our salvation experience, maintaining it, improving it, changing it? No, it does not. Once we become that new creation, although we're going to grow and mature in our faith, God never sees us differently. He always recognizes us from the moment that we are begotten anew, that we believe that we are saved, justified, whatever term you want to use. From the moment that we are saved, God forever will acknowledge us as his redeemed children, redeemed by the blood of his only begotten son. We become part of his family forever. And that gives us insurance, assurance of God's faithfulness to maintain. He does it, not us. So we see here the one who believes that Yeshua is Messiah from God. He has been born, been begotten. And then it says everyone, that same group, everyone who loves the one who has begotten, meaning this. It's God who does that work. So everyone who has been begotten by God will love the one who has caused that, has brought that about, and that is God. And then it says, and shall love also the one begotten by him. Now, this is important because some translations, they get it wrong because they add words. Some translations will say this. Look again in the middle of verse, verse 1. It will say, And will love also the one who begot him. They put the him meaning Yeshua. But it doesn't appear in the text. What is so, so deceitful is that there are some so-called interlinear Bibles. That means they take the Greek and they give you the literal rendition of it, and they add words that the Greek does not have. It simply says here, look again. It says that, that this one who believes in Yeshua, that he's the Messiah, this one has been born again, and everyone who loves the one who has born himself to, to a newness, meaning everyone who has received God, causing him to be born again, loving God. This one loves also the one who has been begotten from him. This is not speaking of Messiah. Messiah is indeed the begotten son of God, but the difference is this. Messiah always existed. There was never a time that Messiah was not. 
So Messiah was not born in the sense that wasn't and then became. We were not begotten. We were lost in our sins. And this concept of being born again gives us a new reality. And that new reality is an eternal reality. But Messiah has always been. When it speaks about the only begotten Son of God, it simply points out that, that God the Son is from God the Father, meaning of that same divinity, those same attributes, that, that same eternal existence that he came from. Now, we, by faith, are born again by God, and we are called to love, and this is what the Scripture is saying here, at the end of the verse, should love also the one who is begotten from him. So all of this is saying is this, we who believe in Messiah, we are going to love God who has caused us to be born again, and we are also going to love those who are begotten from God as well. So it's speaking about unity among believers. We're going to love God and we're going to love one another. Now, how can we be so sure that it's not speaking about us loving Messiah, the only begotten Son of God, that that's what it's speaking about? Well, we, of course, love him, but this is not what it's saying. Why? Well, grammar does not allow that, but there's another point. Look at the second part of of this, this, or the second verse where it says, in this. Now, I would highlight this. What is the purpose of those two words, in this? This tells us that what verse 2 is dealing with is a clarification of what we learn at the end of verse 1. So it's in this, in what was just said, in this, we know that we love and who do we love? The children of God. So in verse 1 it says, If you are a believer in Messiah, you are going to be born again. And this new condition, this transformation, is going to bring about your love for God. God is the one who's caused you to be born again. And you are also going to love the ones whom God begets other believers. And then it says, in this, in this, what we just learned, it is demonstrated because, keep reading in verse 2, the whole verse, in this we know that we love the children of God. Who are the children of God? Everyone who has been, been born into this world created? No. Those who have been born again by, by faith in Messiah. So this second part, of, of verse 2 tells us how to properly understand the last part of verse, verse 1. And then look at the end of verse 2 where it says, Whenever God we love. Now this is going to have some huge implications. It says, whenever. Whenever God we love. So when we are demonstrating the love of God, it's going to teach us here, John's going to reveal to us how that love for God that we have is going to demonstrate, manifest itself. And what is that? Well, notice what he says. Whenever God we love, 
also, this is the outcome, also his commandments we keep. So it's very simple. We have it given to us. The love of God is going to manifest with us keeping his commandments. Now, if you are looking at a more modern translation, and you see the modern translations are derived from a different Greek text that I'm using. I'm translating from the Greek into English myself, and I'm doing so from the Texas Receptus. Most Bibles that, that people use do not have their text based upon this Greek New Testament. They use a different one called Nestle Allen. And Nestle Allen has, instead of his commandments we keep, it says his commandments we do. Now, obviously, there's not a big difference in, in our thought based upon the English language, whether it says we keep the commandments, we do the commandments. But, but what is probably more accurate? Well, in Hebrew, we say, Anachnu mekayamim et hamitzvot. We are are keeping, or another way to say that, anachnu shomrim et hamitzvot. We are keeping the commandments. Now we don't say in Hebrew, anachnu osim et hamitzvot. It's just not the best Hebrew to use the word lasot to do in regard to keeping the commandments. But in other languages, obviously in English, it's fine. In Greek, it's fine. So the fact that the Texas Receptus has the word for, for keeping instead of doing shows a, a closer, closer connection to the Hebraic quality of those Jewish individuals who would have been speaking this. So it gives a better feel, a more accurate understanding of the original speakers, how they would have conveyed this. So again, whenever one loves God, also his commandments we keep. So whenever we love God, we are going to keep his commandments. Look now to verse 3. For this is the love of God. Now it's getting very specific. If we didn't understand what he said previously, now in this verse, verse 3, he's going to make it very clear. For this is the love of God. In order that his commandments, he says it again, we keep. And the commandments, his commandments, are not burdensome. They are not burdensome at all. They are not. That's what it's emphasizing. His commandments, they are not burdensome. Now, what I like about this is this. The subject is God. This is very important. We find that we are called to have faith in Yeshua. But that faith brings about God's work in our life. And since God becomes the subject, and he will continue to be the subject, we know that we're speaking of the commandments of God. Why is that important? Because there are those that say, oh no, we're only talking about not all the commandments in the Bible, but we're always talking about only the Messiah, his commandments, what he taught in the New Testament. Nothing to do with the Old Testament. One cannot come to that conclusion here. That is wrong. 
It's the commandments of God. What commandments of God? All the commandments of God. So once more, the last part of verse 3. And his commandments, burdensome, they are not. Because everyone, and notice what it says, everyone who has been born or begotten from God, notice, he's going to tell us what now keeping, doing the commandments of God brings about. So important that we see how this scripture is being developed, what the revelation is. When I love God, I'm going to keep his commandments. And in keeping his commandments, it is going to bring about something for me in this world. And what is that? Not salvation, but it's going to cause us, and hear this, to live a victorious life. Why do I say that? Once more, look at verse, verse 4 where it says, because everyone who has been born again, born anew, begotten from God, notice he's the subject. It says, victory over the world. And what is this victory that overcomes the world? It is our faith. So what he's saying here is this. And the word here for victory or overcoming is the same word. Victory is a noun. And the, the verb is overcoming. Now, we use two phrases in English, but it's the same Greek word. Sometimes we have nouns that, that aren't used as verbs in the English language. But in Greek, that same word for victory can be used as a verb. And in English, we call that overcoming. So what we learned here is this. That when we are keeping his commandments, it brings about something. Those who have been born again, this is going to manifest itself with keeping the commandments. It is going to do something. It is going to produce victory over the world. And this is the victory. The one who overcomes the world. And how does one overcome the world? It says here, our faith. So our faith is inherently tied to victory, overcoming the things of the world. And that victory is manifested, how? By doing the commandments of God. This is what John is telling us in his epistle. Then we see, look now to verse 5. What is the victory of the world? What is overcoming the world? Is it not believing that Yeshua is the Son of God? Now it simply ties up where we began to show the beginning, the outcome, the victory, and once again, where is this victory had? It's had in faith in Messiah. So again, faith in Messiah is going to change me. It is going to cause me to be born again, to be begotten anew, to become a new creation. And that is going to manifest itself with love. First, love for God. Secondly, love for those who belong to God, those who have shared in the same experience that, that we have shared in, having been born again. We're going to love that one who has been begotten. And the love of God is going to manifest itself 
in those people doing something, keeping the commandments. And when we live that type of life, we're going to have victory, and that victory is we're going to overcome the world. And the victory of overcoming the world is what? Believing in Messiah. That's how it all begins, that he is the Son of God. So we see a circle here in John's teaching that brings us back to where he started. Now verse 6. This is the one who has come. Now the focus now is going to be on Messiah. The first part, believing in him, but that believing causes God to behave. It's a spiritual law. Now we're not manipulating God. We're not forcing God. We're embracing the laws of God. And God simply says, when you believe that Yeshua is my son, that he's the Messiah. Now we learn the Messiah is the son of God. When we learn that and we believe it and we allow it to work in our life, it brings about wonderful changes. This is simply the law of God, how he has set things up. And therefore he tells us in verse 6, now the focus is on Messiah. This one is the one who has come, and he's come through water and blood. Now, learn again, Messiah, he is everlasting. There was never a time that he did not exist, but now it's focusing upon his incarnation, that he came into the world. When it speaks about water, it's speaking about birth. And then it just doesn't say water, it says also this one, who has come into the world by water and also blood. Blood speaks about the cross, talks about the work that he did. So in verse, verse 6, where it says, this one who's come by means of water and blood, the incarnation and the crucifixion. And who is this one? It is Messiah Yeshua, Jesus Christ. And not in water alone, just not being born, not just the incarnation, but in water and blood. It's speaking about the fact that Messiah is, that he entered into this world. That was not enough for him just to come. He had to die. He had to be crucified. And the emphasis of his crucifixion is the blood. Now, I don't want to go off on a big tangent, but it was not simply that he died, that's important, and he did. But that key element, that which brings about redemption is blood. And that's why it's emphasizing here, not just that he died, although he did, but it's emphasizing the blood that he shed. So the incarnation and the crucifixion, which released the blood of Messiah so that we could be born again, that we could be redeemed. And then he goes on to say, also, the Spirit, he is the one that testifies because the Spirit is true. Now, the Spirit, he is true. He is a true Spirit. He testifies accurately, perfectly concerning the truth of God. And this just tells us what John tells us elsewhere back in his gospel, and that is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Messiah, is the Spirit of truth. He will lead us in all truth. Now, notice something here. He ties something together. He ties a testimony, a witness, where it says, and the Spirit, he is the one that 
testifies because the spirit is truth. And what it literally says is the spirit, he is the truth. Very important that we see this, that everything the spirit reveals and the spirit, men wrote down the word of God having been inspired by the spirit of God. So the Holy Spirit, he is true. And therefore it says, look now at verse seven. Now in verses seven and eight, we get into a very important doctrine. And let me say that doctrine is the Trinity. Here's the problem. If you're following a modern translation, they are going to remove some of what the New Testament has. Now why is that? Well remember, there's two primary Greek texts. The Texas Receptus and what's called Nestle Allen. Two men that, that were the editors of the second one. And Nestle Allen, what was their objective? To put together the best Greek text? No. Their objective was to show major differences between main manuscripts and the Texas Receptus. So they weren't about showing us what's the most accurate, but what are the primary differences? The problem is these differences don't improve the text. That was not their intent. And it's very unfortunate that so many translations, the vast majority, in fact, really there's only a few that do not, and that is the King James and the New King James, they only use the Texas Receptus. So you're going to hear some things that are in the Greek text that's not in your Bible, so you need to pay very close attention to this. Look at verse 7. Because three are the ones testifying in heaven. So three are the ones who's testifying in heaven. Who are the three? We'll keep reading. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. Now, the Father, we know that's Father God. The Word, obviously, John tells us back in his gospel, the Word that became flesh is Messiah. So he's the Word of God. We're speaking about the Son of God. And then the Holy Spirit. So, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. A clear reference to the Trinity. Now, if someone says, oh, the Trinity's not in the Bible, well, the Word may not be, but... We see here that there is testifying of the Spirit through the Spirit of God. That's what we learned, the Spirit of truth. And the one who bears witness in the heaven is the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. God the Father, His Son, Messiah Yeshua, and the Holy Spirit. And then it says, look at the end of, of verse 7, and your Bible may not have it if you're using a modern translation. It says, and these three are one. I would underscore this. Now, if you say, but my Bible doesn't have that, that's because you are using a translation that is paid for by a liberal organization. One that believes this higher criticism is, is good. I do not. Because what higher criticism basically says is this. If we can't prove something scientifically or if we can't find a, a total testimony of all the manuscripts then we 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 remove it 
This is very dangerous. Why? Well, the manuscripts of the New Testament, they were written down for many, many years. They were copied and such. And the problem is there were different traditions, different schools that copied them, and some did not have, in fact, most did not have the reverence that they should. When, when they did not like something, believe something, embrace it, they just left it out. And what happened is that, that changes happen. But when we look at the best manuscript, what the Texas Receptus is formed from, we have indeed this, this sentence at the end where it says, and these three are one, a reference clearly to the concept of the Trinity. Now look at verse 8 where it says, and the three are testifying in the land. Now what it's saying here is that these three testified in the heaven. It's a heavenly revelation. But it manifested itself upon the land, meaning this. We need to know about this concept of God the Father, God the Son, Holy Spirit. Once again, and the three are testifying in the land, the Spirit and the water and the blood. Now, the Spirit, Messiah, He's Spirit, and He came into this world the incarnation, through his birth, what is synonymous with the birth? The water. And then it's the blood, his crucifixion. So in the same way that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit testify in heaven, we have this same type of Trinitarian testimony in the work of Messiah, where it speaks about him being spirit that became flesh, he was born, and that he was crucified, that he shed his blood. All of this is foundational to understanding God's revelation, what the one God testifies to us. And then it says again, and the three are in one. So it says it again as we, we conclude verse 8. So I would pay very close attention going through as much as you can find looking at different manuscripts. And if you want to know the, the, the scripture that's included here, it's good to look at the King James, the New King James, or to look at an inner linear that's based upon the Texas Receptus rather than Nestle Allen. Now move to verse 9. If the testimony of men we receive, and people do, in a court of law, people believe what others say. So if the testimony of men we receive, the testimony of God is greater because it is the testimony of God and not a man. That's what the implication is. Let me just read the scripture once more, verse 9. If the testimony of men we receive, the testimony of God Greater it is because it is the testimony of God, which he has testified. And here's what's so important. Once more, when you look at this phrase, which he has testified concerning his son, the, the tense of this word for testifying is that he has testified in the past. It's true now and it will forever be true. Nothing's going to change this. 
This is the testimony of God. Once more, it says, because this is the testimony of God, which he has testified concerning his son. So we need to believe that Messiah, he is God incarnate. He was born. God who is spirit became flesh because he was born into this world. That's the water. So we have the Spirit of God becoming flesh and that flesh being offered up for redemption. This is what the blood testifies to. Now look at verse 10. The one believing in the Son of God has this testimony in him. Very important. When you believe the testimony, then you have the Son of God, this testimony concerning Him, in you. Now, the implications of this is very important. He's going to show us in a moment. But someone who says, I don't believe that Messiah is divine. I, I don't believe that Messiah is God incarnate. When you deny that, you don't have the testimony of the Son in you. This means... He's not in you. You're not a believer. You have not been justified. You have not been forgiven. You have not been saved. You have to believe in the divinity of Messiah. And, and people struggle with that statement I make. You mean to tell me that, that if someone doesn't believe in the Trinity, they're not saved? That's right. Why? Because they don't know who Yeshua is. They don't know that he is the Son of God. Now, I had an encounter, and this is what I'm talking about when people are willfully deceitful. It was brought to my attention that a congregational leader, and I would say that he believed in the Trinity, but, but he was influenced by another individual, and he says, you know, I never believed in that. Okay, I'm going to accept his testimony. He never believed in the Trinity. Therefore, what happens? Well, it was told to me. It caused an issue with our study group here in Israel. So I called him, and I consider him a friend. Used to consider him a brother because I thought that he believed the truth, but based upon his current words, he's not. He's still a friend. So I called him up, and I said, Do you believe that Yeshua is divine? He said, Absolutely. thought that was wonderful. But then, he, as I posed him further, he believes that everything has divinity. Because God created everything, God put a little bit of himself in everything. This is a Hasidic thought. And the one who has influenced him comes from this background, and therefore. So when he says Yeshua is divine, he doesn't believe that he is divine like God, but he has a, a divine sprinkling upon him like all of creation. Well, this is not what we mean when we speak about Yeshua being divine. He says, I believe he's the son of God. That sounds great. It wasn't until I said to him, do you worship Yeshua? He says, absolutely not. It would be blasphemy to worship him because even though he was a wonderful teacher, even though God used him greatly, he is still, still only man. 
So this just totally contradicted what he said earlier. But he, he used words in a way to try to conceal that he really didn't believe in the divinity. So when you don't know who Yeshua is, you can't be saved. This is what John is telling us. If you have this testimony of the three in one, then you have the testimony that Yeshua is the Son of God in yourself. If you don't, you don't have Yeshua in you. For it says, this one does not believe, look at, look at verse 10, let's read the whole verse. The one believing in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. But the one not believing in God, it says, makes him to be a liar. So when someone denies the divinity of Yeshua, he is calling God a liar. This is what we see being revealed in verse 10. So everyone who says, oh, I believe that, that Yeshua is the Messiah, but I do not believe that he's divine. This one is calling God a liar. And he doesn't, if you think God's a liar, you don't believe in the biblical God. So he's underscoring the problem that people have today spiritually with denying the divinity of Messiah. And one of the big takeaways from the Trinity is the divinity of Messiah. Again, verse 10, we read, The one believing in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one not believing God has made God to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony which God has testified concerning his son. Now that's pretty easy to understand. He has not believed the testimony that, that God has testified concerning his only begotten son, Messiah Yeshua. You reject the identity of Messiah, you reject God. And that's why those who, and it's not all in the Messianic movement, but some, and unfortunately a growing number, that believes, well, if you believe in the God of Israel, and you believe that there is a Messiah, then you by default believe in, in Messiah, Yeshua. And therefore, you, 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 because Messiah and God are one, therefore you believe in the Messiah. No. Just because you believe that there is a Messiah and you believe that there is the God of Israel doesn't mean that you believe in the true Messiah. Believing that there is a Messiah coming does not save one. You need to believe in the Son of God by name, Yeshua. This is where the scripture begins, does it not? Look back at verse 1. Everyone believing that Yeshua is the Messiah. This doesn't mean if you believe that there is a Messiah. That is not enough. Now we see verse 11. And this is the testimony that God has given to us eternal life. What he's saying is this. The outcome of having such a testimony, believing that Yeshua is the Son of God, believing that, that there is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the three, they are one. 
when we believe in the three persons, the Trinity, then it tells us this is the testimony that God has given to us eternal life, kingdom life. If we don't have that testimony concerning the identity of Messiah, how his identity relates to him being one of the persons of the Trinity, then we don't have eternal life. Then he says, last part of verse 11, and this is the life in, which is in his son. This is the life that we have in him. It only comes through his son. And this life is in his son. That's another way we can render it. This life is in his son. Last verse, verse 12, and we'll close. The one having the son, meaning faith in him, that testimony, believing the truth. The one having the son has life. Literally, the life, referring to the kingdom life. So if you don't have the son, if someone says, well, I believe in Messiah, but I don't believe he's the son of God, they don't have faith in the biblical Messiah. And therefore, they don't have life. The one having the son has life. But the one who does not have the Son of God, notice how that's emphasized, the Son of God. It says, he does not have life. And when it says having the Son, it's understanding properly, correctly, his identity. That Yeshua is the Son of God. That he is the Spirit who became flesh. God is Spirit. So he is the eternal Son of God who took on human flesh when he was born, the water, in order that he might give his blood when he was crucified. It's only when we believe in this Messiah that we have life. And this is the faith that we are, which is incumbent upon us to believe. And this faith in Messiah is going to give us the love of God who is going to manifest, that love is going to manifest itself with obeying the word of God. This is what John teaches us. Well, I'm going to close with that until next week when we finish up our study of first epistle of John. Until then, may God bless you. Shalom from Israel. Well, we hope you will benefit from today's message and share it with others. Please plan to join us each week at this time and on this channel for our broadcast of loveisrael.org. Again, to find out more about us, please visit our website, loveisrael.org. There you will find articles and numerous other lectures by Baruch. These teachings are in video form. You may download them or watch them in streaming video. Until next week, may the Lord bless you in our Messiah Yeshua, that is, Jesus, as you walk with Him. Shalom from Israel.